Hey, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Sorry for getting started a little bit late today. Obviously, we had uh, some technical difficulties. And on that end, I should note, because of the PowerPoint presentation, if anybody over here uh, doesn't have a good view of the screen, feel free to, uh, to move seats uh, to the other side of the room. Um, before we get started with, uh, with day two of Healthcare University, let me once again point out the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. This is a publication we release uh, once every four years, and the latest issue just came out a couple months ago. Uh, it's a great resource to keep on your desk as you're familiarizing yourself with new issues. Pretty much gives a Cato libertarian free market perspective on uh, virtually every issue deal with here on Capitol Hill, from health care to, to trade, foreign policy, uh, you name it. If you don't have a copy or you need an extra copy, just let me know or uh, let another uh, Cato staffer know. Kirk Couchman over here is a good one uh, to be in touch with, and we'll be happy to get one delivered to you. Um, today, uh, as you guys probably know, is day two of Healthcare University. This is a four-lecture series that we've put together to address what is uh, quite possibly the most important domestic health, uh, most important domestic policy issue facing Congress this year. Uh, for those who missed it yesterday, we talked about uh, the virtues or lack of virtue of a, of a public plan. Today we're going to be talking about mandates. Uh, tomorrow we'll be discussing why we shouldn't have price controls in health care. And on Friday we will talk about some free market reforms that we could implement. If you missed yesterday or if you end up missing any of the sessions, uh, you should know that they are all are available on our website, cato.org. If you go to our archived events section, you can watch video, and uh, we should have the PowerPoints available there as well. Um, also, uh, hopefully everybody has picked up a binder, Healthcare University binder, chock full of reading material for you. Uh, the binder is the same from day to day, so if you got one yesterday, no need to pick another one up. And with that, I'll go ahead and introduce our speaker. Uh, speaker is, is Michael Cannon. He's going to be giving all four lectures. Uh, he's the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Prior to that, he worked as a domestic policy analyst at the uh, Senate Republican Policy Committee. Um, he is the co-author of this book, Healthy Competition, which I will probably be holding up each and every day because I uh, truly believe it's, a, it's an excellent resource for you. And if you don't have a copy, again, let me know, and I'd be happy to get one for you. With that, I'll turn things over to Michael. Thank you, Brandon, and thank you, Brian, for struggling with the AV uh, to get this up and running. And thank you all for coming here uh, for uh, the second of four le lectures uh, about health care and uh, the health care reform proposals that are going to be put before us or should be put before us this year. Uh, yesterday we spoke uh, about uh, a, a proposal for a new public plan. Uh, Today, what I'd like to discuss is another important component of most of the reform plans that we've seen put forward uh, by uh, uh, President-elect Obama, by um, uh, uh, Senator Baucus, and, and by others, and, and that is mandates. Uh, mandates, legal requirements that individuals purchase insurance either on their own or through an employer, what we call both uh, either an individual or an employer mandate. So what I would... Uh, what I would like to do today, the main points I'd like to make are that health insurance mandates aren't going to accomplish what supporters hope. In fact, they'll do a considerable amount of harm uh, because in addition to the problems created by higher taxes and job loss, health insurance mandates would give government such sweeping powers over the health insurance and health care markets that there's really little difference between enacting a, a mandate and moving, uh, 
most or all Americans into a new public plan, a new public plan as we discussed yesterday. A mandate imposes taxes on individuals, enables the government to compel participation in the health insurance market, and enables the government to dictate the terms, not just of health insurance, but also gives government the motive, means, and opportunity to control the delivery of medical care and even ration access to medical care. So first, uh, let's look at some of the reasons why you might want to mandate health insurance, why a mandate is, is so appealing to so many observers. Let's assume you're interested in some combination of the following goals, improving health, saving lives, achieving universal coverage, making coverage more affordable, eliminating free riding, or even promoting personal responsibility. I submit to you that if these are your goals, then supporting an individual mandate is a losing strategy. If you want to improve people's health, there's absolutely no evidence that expanding coverage is the most cost-effective way to do that, such as through an individual mandate. There's no evidence that that would deliver greater health improvements than other strategies. We cannot say, for example, that an individual mandate would improve people's health more than devoting the same amount of resources to community health centers, to discrete programs uh, for screening and treating hypertension or diabetes or other illnesses, or even uh, devoting those resources to improving education, which most health, most health economists believe has a causal effect on health outcomes. In, so by in, uh, investing in expanded insurance coverage, we could be foregoing even greater gains by not investing, uh, even greater health gains by not investing uh, those resources in a superior strategy. And if you want to save lives, then the large number of uninsured Americans probably shouldn't even be your first priority. The Institute of Medicine estimates, as I mentioned yesterday, that up to five times as many Americans die from preventable medical errors than uh, from a lack of health insurance. Now, suppose you want to achieve universal health insurance coverage. An individual mandate may get you close, but it won't get you there. And evidence, uh, evidence from state experiments with insurance mandates suggests that people will still uh, will avoid the mandate and still forego insurance. 47 states currently mandate that drivers purchase auto insurance, and yet some states have uninsured motorist rates the top 20%. In Hawaii, which enacted an employer mandate back in 1974, uh, that mandate, uh, according to Sherry Gleed and her colleagues, appears to have reduced uninsurance by only a modest amount. Right now, the share of uninsured in Hawaii is 8%. In Massachusetts, it's a good bit lower. Massachusetts in 2006 enacted an individual mandate. They also enacted a, a whole range of other reforms that, are, uh, that were designed to um, achieve universal coverage. They enacted subsidies to help people comply with the mandate and so forth. And yet in Massachusetts, about 167,000 people at last count uh, still are uninsured. That's only about 3% of the population. That's pretty close to uh, universal coverage. But I think an important lesson from what happened in Massachusetts is this. Two percentage points uh, of, of that 2.6% who remain uninsured were exempted from the mandate. They were exempted from the Massachusetts individual mandate because the uh, Massachusetts legislature decided that health insurance would not be affordable for them and that they weren't going to subsidize those people's purchases of health insurance. So what does that mean? It means that Massachusetts enacted a mandate and they weren't willing to provide the subsidies necessary to help people comply with that mandate, which suggests that the mandate is actually pretty costly and even more costly when you consider that a lot of the subsidies, that Massachusetts had the opportunity to use Medic federal Medicaid dollars to help subsidize people's purchase of health insurance. So not only was Massachusetts not willing to bear the tax burden of the subsidies necessary to uh, 
help everyone comply with this mandate. It wasn't even willing to bear that tax burden when it was only bearing half of the cost, when it was only bearing half of that tax burden and was able to push the rest of the cost off onto the federal government or really taxpayers in other states. That gives you an idea of the enormous costs that are involved in, uh, in, in uh, imposing an individual mandate, whether those costs are borne by individuals uh, purchasing health insurance on their own or by the state in helping people uh, comply with that mandate. So uh, moving on, if you want to make, let's say you want to make health insurance more affordable, an individual ma mandate would actually have the opposite effect because special interests have a way of lobbying legislators until the minimum benefits package that's considered uh, complying with the mandate uh, becomes uh, unaffordable. In order to require people to purchase something, you have to define what that something is. And on the day that the legislature decides or a, or a bureaucracy decides that it's going to determine what creditable coverage is, a line forms out the door, a, a line of patient advocacy groups, but mostly provider, providers who want to make sure that their services are covered. And in Massachusetts, what happened after they enacted the mandate? Well, before reform, Massachusetts already mandated that people who purchase health insurance purchase 43 different types of benefits. With reform, with the individual mandate, Massachusetts added additional benefit mandates. For example, uh, Massachusetts residents were required to purchase prescription drug coverage. They were required to purchase coverage for preventive care services. They were uh, restricted to deductibles of no more than $2,000 for individuals or $4,000 for families. Uh, uh, also, uh, maximum deductibles were imposed on drug coverage. There were maximum out-of-pocket limits imposed. These all required uh, tens of thousands of Massachusetts residents to purchase more coverage than they already had. People who, were, who, who had health insurance, were, many of whom were probably quite satisfied with it, were required by the mandate to purchase more coverage. That additional coverage makes uh, health insurance and complying with the mandate, uh, makes health insurance less affordable and complying with the mandate more onerous. Some people might prefer a $5,000 deductible or to pay for drugs or preventive care out of pocket, but the individual mandate took that choice away and is making health insurance less affordable as a result. What about free riding? Well, if you want to eliminate free riding, then I would argue not only are you focusing on a molehill of a problem, but an individual mandate won't solve that problem for you either. First off, uncompensated care accounts uh, for at most or cost shifting of uncompensated care accounts for at most 1.7% of private health insurance premiums, according to a study in Health Affairs by, um, uh, is it John Hadley? Or is it, I think it's John Holohan. I think it's John Hadley as well and his colleagues. Uh, for a bit of perspective, your own body mass fluctuates by more than that over the course of a day, and you don't even know it. Moreover, giving people health insurance doesn't stop them from free riding because another study, this by Hadley Ann Holohan, found that one-third of uncompensated care in the United States goes to patients who have insurance but don't pay their, pay their share of the bill. When experts are estimating that upward of 30% of all U.S. health spending is wasted, it almost seems a waste of breath to be talking about free riding as, as though that were a serious problem. And if you want to promote personal responsibility, I think an individual mandate would do the opposite. If you're like me, you want to live in a society where we provide medical care to people who can't afford it, even if they're, uh, the reason they can't afford it was their own stupidity, because they had the opportunity to purchase health insurance, but they didn't, and now, uh, and now they're sick or injured and can't afford medical care. 
And you also recognize that there will always be a cost associated with that generosity. There will always be a cost associated with it because people will know that that generosity exists and they will take advantage of it. They will free ride. That is part of the, the price of living in a compassionate society, and right now it comes to less than 3% of total medical spending. But forcing others to purchase health insurance so that you, don't have, you and I don't have to pay with the costs associated with our own compassion, perhaps because we think our compassion should cost us nothing, does not promote personal responsibility. In fact, I think that's the very opposite of personal responsibility. So we've looked at uh, a couple of uh, uh, reasons to support mandates and found them lacking. Why might we not want to create an individual mandate? Well, first of all, mandates are taxes that disproportionately fall on the young and income constrained. They lead to rising health care costs, as I've mentioned before. And in the end, uh, I would argue that, that mandates are essentially special interest legislation uh, and individual mandates particularly uh, lead uh, uh, to employer mandates, which are even more complex and distort labor markets as well as health care markets. So let's first be very clear about what a mandate is. As uh, Princeton health economist Uwe Reinhardt will tell you, as Obama's uh, chairman of the National Economic Council, Larry Summers, will tell you, mandates are taxes. The, the fact that the revenues never flow through the federal treasury doesn't make them any less a tax. A health insurance mandate is a tax to the extent that it forces people to buy something that they don't value. And, and to the extent that the government subsidizes people to help them comply with the mandate, then those uh, subsidies also represent a tax because the money has to come from somebody. The people hit hardest by this tax are the uninsured who are disproportionately young. Now, this graph is, I, uh, uh, I stole it from, the, from a, uh, Jonathan Gruber's public finance textbook. Jonathan Gruber is an, an economist at MIT, and he's on the uh, board that helps manage the Massachusetts health care reforms. What this graph is meant to do is it's meant to show the distribution of health insurance coverage in the United States. It's really only for a portion of the population. You can see that 45.8, an estimated 45.8 million people have no health insurance. And then some people have health insurance is not very comprehensive, but as you move from left to right, health insurance gets more comprehensive. So as I mentioned before, to impose a health insurance mandate, the government has to set a minimum amount of coverage that satisfies the mandate. So let's say that the government set the mandate at whatever is the least comprehensive insurance that someone purchases today. Some of the people, uh, some of the uninsured, would require a subsidy uh, to help them uh, to comply with that mandate, a, a, a full subsidy in order to help them comply with that mandate. So that entire subsidy would, would, would represent a tax. Not all of the uninsured would require a subsidy. But to the extent that the mandate forces the uninsured to spend their own money on something they don't value, it imposes a tax on them. Now, because the minimum, uh, but the minimum benefits package, of course, is never really set that low. With a more comprehensive benefits package, more people will require subsidies, and the tax imposed on the uninsured will be greater. And to the extent that a mandate forces people with insurance to purchase additional coverage that they don't value, the mandate would also impose a tax on people who already have insurance, but whose insurance is less comprehensive than what the mandate requires. Now, during the 2008 presidential campaign, Barack Obama suggested, that, or he proposed, uh, an employer mandate that would require all employers to offer what he called meaningful coverage. 
And the closest we got to a definition of meaningful coverage out of candidate Obama was it'll be like the, the health insurance that members of Congress get. Probably, you know, a good, estimate, a, a, a good proxy for what he had in mind might be the most popular plan in the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, which is the uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield standard plan. Actually, when I was here, there was a standard and a high. I, don't, I think the high might have been dropped. Is there a high, Blue Cross Blue Shield high anymore? Basic and standard. So they dropped high. They had, that's very interesting. That will come up tomorrow during our discussion on price controls. But if that's, the, if that's what uh, uh, a mandate would use as uh, a definition of minimum creditable coverage, what that actually would do is it would impose a tax on about, well, not just 40 or so million uninsured Americans, but also as many as one half of all Americans who cur currently purchase private health insurance. The, uh, the standard Blue Cross Blue Shield plan uh, costs about $12,000 for a family, which is about the average cost of health insurance in, uh, in, in the private market. So it's a good ballpark estimate to say that about half of the market purchases less than that amount uh, and would have to purchase more coverage in order to comply with a mandate, uh, a mandate set at that level. So you're talking about uh, a, a tax burden that's being imposed on about half of the 180, 200 million Americans who have private health insurance coverage. That's an awfully hefty tax burden to impose on people, especially in the middle of a recession, especially when the burden of this tax will rise over time as uh, the legislature adds more and more benefits to the mandate, and especially considering pe uh, the people who will bear the brunt of this tax increase, the uninsured and those with less generous coverage tend to be younger and have moderate incomes. And especially, uh, it seems an especially uh, hefty tax to impose when you swore up and down during your presidential campaign that you would not raise taxes on the middle class, and when your vice president, uh, your vice presidential candidate, your running mate, also swore up and down that you would not raise taxes on the middle class. And finally, I think it would be an especially cruel irony because contrary to another uh, campaign pledge by uh, the Obama-Biden campaign that you'd be able to keep your current health plan and your doctor under health care reform, this one change, that one change that uh, uh, candidate Obama proposed uh, of imposing an employer mandate would force many employers to reevaluate their offerings. Many would end up switching to a different insurer who may use different provider networks. So not only would millions be ousted from their current health plans, but the mandate would threaten uh, many workers' relationships with their doctors. Now, uh, the next reason uh, why not to, to mandate is that mandates lead to rising costs. Here, uh, again, we need to look no forward than Massachusetts. I mentioned before that the burden of the Massachusetts mandate is growing. Because of the mandate and the subsidies designed to help people comply, healthcare spending in the Commonwealth has grown about 66% faster than the overall trend, according to a recent study. Government spending is higher than projected. Revenues are insufficient to cover the state's outlays, and lawmakers are scrambling to make up the gap. They have raised taxes on tobacco, on health insurers, on hospitals, on firms that don't offer health benefits, but it hasn't stopped the bleeding yet. So to really control spending, they're examining additional regulations that would let the state ration care either explicitly, such as by denying coverage for services without a, a, a sufficient evidence base, or implicitly with premium caps uh, or different payment systems, premium caps are ca capped on how much a, a health insurer can increase their premiums from one year to the next. 
Massachusetts has even created a commission to help them impose a, quote, common payment methodology across all public and private payers in the Commonwealth. Now, yesterday I discussed how markets promote quality. One of the main ways they do is by allowing competition between different payment systems and how by favoring fee-for-service over prepayment and blended payment systems in, in between those two extremes, the Medicare program has actually held down the quality of health care in the United States. And yet Massachusetts' individual mandate not only has the Commonwealth trying to build on the mistakes of the U.S. Medicare program by locking the entire state into a single payment methodology, but it also has the Commonwealth inching closer to Canada's Medicare system and government rationing of medical care by the day. As an aside, that, that report I mentioned on spending growth in, in the Commonwealth uh, said that fears about the Massachusetts reforms have not come to pass. Why? Because employers and the government and individuals are all paying proportionally the same amount for health care than they were before. Yes, spending has gone up, but everyone's share of health care spending uh, is the same as it was before reform, and the report called that share re shared responsibility. Now, of course, that's just a cute way of distorting the fact that the Massachusetts mandate caused residents' taxes to rise, it caused their wages to fall, and it caused their health premiums to rise all in the same proportion. Massachusetts residents are paying for the mandate through higher taxes to pay for those subsidies. They're paying for the mandate through higher insurance premiums because the mandate is requiring them to purchase more insurance. And they're paying for the mandate through lower wages because the, employers, uh, that, that, uh, the employer contributions to uh, their health benefits um, eat into their wages. And that is basically what mandates do. They force consumers to pay more for an already too expensive health care sector, but they hide the mandate in higher out-of-pocket payments higher explicit taxes and lower wages. Which is really why uh, I, I submit that mandates amount to special interest legislation more than any serious attempt at health care reform. Mandates throw more money in a broken health care sector without doing anything to fix that sector. I think no one understood this uh, more than uh, candidate Obama, who said, or I should say, you know, this is candidate Obama, who said the insurance companies are quite happy to have a mandate because they don't mind forcing that everyone purchase uh, their product. And that's why I, we've seen the physician lobby and the insurance lobby signaling their support for an individual mandate because they are the beneficiaries of the mandate tax. And even if you like the idea of an individual mandate in isolation, individual mandates rarely show up on their own. They're usually coupled with employer mandates, which create a whole host of additional problems. Employer mandates are probably even more problematic than individual mandates because they are no less a tax on individual citizens, but they also add additional complexity to the mandate scheme and distort labor markets through rent-seeking, efforts to avoid the mandate tax, job loss, and potentially through discrimination against sicker and older workers. In 1993, Bill Clinton gave one reason why the two mandates typically move in tandem. Some fear that an individual mandate would cause employers to drop coverage, so to prevent them from doing so, an employer mandate forces them to keep offering coverage. A more plausible story is that an employer mandate appeals to politicians because it does a better job of hiding the mandate tax from workers. If there's one thing on which health economists agree, it is that workers and not employers pay the cost of their health benefits, and they pay for them through lower, in the form of reduced wages. Uh, the 55% the, the and the 37% there both agree with that statement. And an employer mandate disguises that mandate tax in the form of lower wages rather than higher compelled insurance premiums, so it's less obvious to workers that that's what's going on.
The additional complexity involves decisions like which firms and which workers will be subject to the mandate and which will be exempt. Will small businesses be exempt? Will only full-time workers be subject to the mandate? How will we define part-time workers? Will it be 20 hours per week? Will it be 100 hours per month? The government must set minimum compliance levels for employee participation and quote-unquote employer contributions to health benefits as well. What about married couples who work for different employers? How much must an uh, employer contribute toward uh, their workers' premiums? Every one of these parameters becomes a tool that employers, lobbyists can use to benefit themselves and cripple their competitors, as well as a margin that firms and individuals can exploit to dodge and defeat the mandate. I once had a, a lobbyist from Walmart tell me that actually Walmart's kind of sympathetic toward employer mandates, which was counterintuitive to me because they were getting clobbered in Maryland with this bill that was designed to force them to provide uh, more generous health benefits. Uh, so when, that, when, when I raised an eyebrow, the lobbyist explained to me that actually Target's health benefits costs were lower than Walmart's. So any employer mandate set at any level would force Target to spend more on its, labor on its health benefits than Walmart. It would hurt Target more than it would hurt Walmart. So that, after that, I raised two eyebrows. A study of state health insurance regulations uh, 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 conducted recently found that when those regulations applied uh, to firms of a certain size, if, there was a, uh, if it only applied to small businesses, if there was an exemption for small businesses, then what tended to happen was firms would expand or contract their workforce in order to avoid those regulatory costs. And as any economist will tell you, productivity suffers when factors other than efficiency determine firm size. And as Larry Summers helpfully explains, when a minimum wage prevents employers from lowering wages in order to pay the employer mandate tax, a firm has to let those people go. This is particularly perverse because a large share of the very uninsured people you're trying to help with an employer mandate are those in those very low-wage jobs. So Kate Baker and Helen Levy, respectively of Harvard University and the University of Michigan, estimated that 43% of the uninsured earn so little that they would be at risk of losing their jobs if uh, Congress created an employer mandate. And that ultimately, about 315,000 of them would lose their jobs. And the people who lose their jobs would be disproportionately minorities and uh, have little education. So just as candidate Obama observed that the people of Massachusetts, that some people in Massachusetts are now worse off because not only do they have no health insurance, but they're paying a penalty that Massachusetts has imposed on them for, for not purchasing health insurance. An employer mandate would leave those 315,000 workers not only with no health insurance, but with no job. And unlike the jobs that are disappearing every month during this recession, the jobs killed by an employer mandate are jobs that are not likely to return because the mandate sets the minimum compensation package uh, higher than these workers' productivity. And so as long as the cost of a mandate grows faster than the productivity of low-skilled workers, there will be more job losses. And if, for some other reason, wages for older and sicker workers cannot adjust downward, Larry Summers uh, helpfully instructs us again, uh, then employers will avoid those workers in the hope of avoiding the higher costs that they impose on the company health plan. Uh, uh, Mr. Summers explains that uh, employer mandates can thus work against the interests of those who most require the benefit being offered. In fact, Mr. Summers goes so far as to argue that health insurance mandates may do more to expand government than if, say, President Obama just hiked everyone's income taxes.
So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with no evidence that an individual mandate is the best strategy for improving health. And uh, it leaves us with the conclusion that the large number of lives lost to medical errors suggests that maybe we shouldn't be focusing on universal coverage to begin with, not that an individual mandate would achieve universal coverage. An individual mandate certainly won't make coverage more affordable. Massachusetts uh, is, uh, is, is testament to that. Massachusetts also shows the dangers of throwing more money at our existing health care sector without first controlling costs. Free riding, again, is barely worth a mention, and an individual mandate won't stop it. And the idea that an individual mandate promotes personal responsibility, in my view, turns the reality on its head. What an individual mandate would do is tax the young and income-constrained for the sake of special interests that are already too heavily subsidized, and it would do so in the middle of a recession. And it would likely be accompanied by an employer mandate that would kill jobs, harm the very people that we want to help, and distract firms from getting the economy moving again. Those in search of serious health care reform, in my view, should look elsewhere. And on Friday, we'll be talking about some of those places that uh, we should be looking instead. Much is made of the difference between an individual mandate and a new government health plan, yet an individual mandate would give government so much more control over Americans' health care decisions, compelling them to purchase insurance, dictating what they purchase, and leading government to control costs by rationing medical care, that there's scarcely much difference between the two approaches. The main difference might be that health insurance mandates actually let private insurers in on the plunder. Like a public health plan, therefore, an individual or, or employer mandate would make any health care reform package irredeemable, and reform packages that include either mandate should be rejected. So thank you very much, and I'm happy to take any questions.